ഓം നമോ ഭഗവതെ വാസുദേവായ ഓം നമോ ഭഗവതെ വാസുദേവായ ഓം നമോ ഭഗവതെ വാസുദേവായ അധിഷ്ഠാനം Uh, in this verse lord krishna is describing the various factors or causes of action and they say well this is pretty heavy philosophy for hot sunday afternoon but trying to understand what is the cause of everything that is the mission of human life human life begins with inquiry into the spiritual athato brahma jignasa now we should inquire into the spiritual and what is the nature of spirit that is uh, answered by or immediately established as janmadya seyataha yeah janmadya seyataha the absolute truth is the source of all emanations should the proper translates it like this not only all emanations but all everything that comes into being everything that is in being and everything that ultimately is destroyed this is all affected by the supreme now this is not simply theoretical philosophy it uh, it affects us abs- absolutely arjun was uh, wanting to know how he should act so to analyze this very deeply lord krishna is analyzing the different causes of action in uh, philosophy uh, there is is analyze the different kinds of causes in the uh vedic philosophy that's well that, that's called the uh the instrumental cause and the material cause that's the nimitta karan and the upadan karan the um example the standard example is given uh, uh, what is the cause of a pot the material cause is the clay and the uh instrumental cause is the potter both are required without clay there's no pot and without a potter there's only clay but no pot should the proper rights here in the purport the supreme lord is the super cause does anyone know a line from shastra in which this is stated is more than one yes. well known verses aham sarvasya prabhavah yeah and the next line is repeats the same thing now krishna says everything is uh from me everything i i everything is generated mm-hmm. then the next line after that matas sarvam prabhatate which is the uh, corollary of this that everything comes from me lord krishna says then another famous line that krishna is the cause of all causes krishna 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 sarva karana karanam 
Lord. This means that Krishna is the cause of all causes. If we search back long enough, we'll find that the ultimate cause of everything is Krishna. The potter makes the clay pot. The ultimate cause is Krishna. Krishna provides the clay, and he also impels the potter to make the pot. So in non-Vedic philosophy also, there's also the study of cause, and that uh, there are various philosophical systems which expand themselves into uh, sociology, psychology, anthropology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, historiography, and so on. So they also try to understand what are the motivations for human action. In the modern age, the motive for human action is studied carefully by the people in the advertising industry. And they've become very expert in learning how to uh, exploit people's motivations to buy things which they don't need and are actually no use to them. For instance, Coca-Cola. Has everyone here heard of Coca-Cola? Yeah, everyone's heard of Coca-Cola. It's more famous than Krishna on this, on this planet anyway. Everyone's heard of Coca-Cola. If you go to a mountain village in Afghanistan, there's probably someone there now, apart from being ready to shoot you for being a non-Afghani, um, well, before he shoots you, he'll, he'll sell you a Coca-Cola. <laughs> if you go to the go exploring in Antarctica and you find some remote civilization and stuck away somewhere in Antarctica, and when you come in, they'll offer you a frozen Coca-Cola. So they've. Uh, the Coca-Cola company has become very expert in understanding some factors of human motivation so that they've been able to sell their product, which is actually completely useless all over the world. So, uh, in Bhagavad Gita here also, Lord Krishna is uh, touching on, not going into great depth, but touching on the science of human motivation. Among modern psychologists and anthropologists, there are various theories as to why people do anything. According to their theory, all living beings are simply uh, combinations of chemicals. And But somehow or other they say that the, there's a, a great uh, motivating factor is that of survival. And practically speaking, we see that not only in human beings, in every species, the living being is trying to survive. If we put the a potted plant near to the window, it will grow toward the window because it wants the light so that it can survive, and can, can flourish better. Darwin's theory is the survival of the fittest. So the first... Or the, or the prime motive seems to be that of survival. Now, uh, you may know that Srila Prabhupada, he discussed the theories of various uh, philosophers. He, he systematically discussed them for the sake of compiling a book of which uh, has been published. What's the name of that book? Hmm? Beyond, Beyond illusion and doubt. Yeah. It's not published. It was brought out first of all as dialectic spiritualism, and then it was re-edited and brought out as Beyond illusion and doubt. Anyway, Prabhupada had the idea to make a book of discussing 
prominent philosophers of the Western world, I think, beginning with Socrates, who was chronologically the first one. Now, I've heard it said that, Prabhupada said that Freud, Darwin, and Marx were the three greatest demons of the modern era. I don't know if it's true or not, but Prabhupada certainly didn't have a very high opinion of their theories. That saying of Prabhupada is not recorded in any book, so it might be just one of those sayings, so we can't really quote it as a fact. But actually, uh, the, the central point of Freud's teaching, actually Prabhupada agreed with it, that the main impulse of human action is sex desire. However, there's a, a great difference between the Vedic teaching and the Freudian teaching that Freud said that sex is the central impulse for action, uh, therefore get into it, do it more, as much as possible. Don't have any taboos. First Srila Prabhupada, following the Vedic conclusion, said, yes, sex is the main motive of human action. That's the problem. Therefore we have to overcome that desire, not, not indulge in it. But anyway... Um, Objectively speaking, we can say that in human life and in most uh, species of life that survival and sex are two prominent factors of, in uh, motivating action. We may say, well, these are not the factors which are discussed by Krishna in the verse under discussion today. But remember, there, there are different kinds of causes, so we're discussing different kinds of causes. One uh, major motive of action is love. Because of love, a man will walk five miles in the rain to see his loved one. Because of love of one's country, people will sacrifice their life. So there's an example of the the will to survive is uh, eclipsed by the the desire to sacrifice oneself for one's country due to love for one's country. The opposite side of love is, of course, hate. This uh, love of one's country is uh, its nourished by dislike for other countries. So when I was growing up as a child in England in the 1960s, there was, uh, was still so much, there was always so much bad talk about Germans because uh, the last war Britain had fought was against the Germans. So that anti-German feeling was strong even one generation later. I think that also, uh, that also, uh, that's one of the defining characteristics of being a Russian is that to be a true Russian, you don't like Germans. Is yeah. that a fact? It's, it's part of being no, not not, not nowadays. Not in England. No, they don't like Germans, but they have a long-standing dislike of French people. Either. <laughs> Did this uh, Olympic Games begin yet? It's not yet. Still didn't begin. Okay. So this uh, this Olympic Games, so I'm told, was originally founded as it's like a kind of uh, when they're not when the when the Greeks or whoever they were Spartans or whatever were not fighting they'd have sports it's like to keep them ready for fit for fighting and the, uh, the one idea about sport is that well if you 
if you do sport, it keeps you from fighting because it's it's a competition, but you don't actually kill people or harm them in most cases. And speaking from my childhood experience, again, um, we see how this propensity to love that uh, in my native Britain, this propensity to love was, uh, it's focused on some football team. It's very common. And if you love one football team, then you have to hate another one. That's part of it. So while cultivating unmotivated, unadulterated love for your local football team, that's also accompanied by uh, unmotivated, unadulterated hatred for the neighboring team. Here in Russia, the hockey teams are more popular, is it? Football. Football. They have the same thing. They hate the local team, the, the neighboring team. Or neighboring club, I should say. Whatever. Now, there's a very interesting comment that Srila Prabhupada made in one of his early Back to Godhead magazines. This was maybe in the 1940s, during the Second World War. And in this, in his early Back to Godhead, Srila Prabhupada would often quote uh, from the newspaper statements of important people, and then Srila Prabhupada would comment on that. So Srila Prabhupada was quoting uh, some big shot of the material world, saying that uh, we have to get rid of this frenzy of hate. The frenzy of hate which at that time was manifesting as the second world war of the 20th century in which people just went into miserable conditions to try to kill each other, which they succeeded in doing to a large scale. So Srila Prabhupada noted very wittily and aptly that we we cannot get rid of the frenzy of hate unless we get rid of the frenzy of love. So people think we should get rid of hate and only have love. But in this material world, the two go side by side. When Srila Prabhupada was preaching Krishna Conscious on the west, in west coast of California, in 1967, there were many famous rock bands were being formed that remained famous. Maybe they were just forming at that time. They were very famous. One of the most famous songs of that time, when Srila Prabhupada was preaching there, was uh, you, you Need Somebody to Love. Something like that. You, I think it was called that. You Need Somebody to Love. So it seems that in this material, that, that analysis is there, that everyone needs someone else to love, but it seems that we also need, in material consciousness, we also need someone to hate. We can channel all our bad feelings into someone to hate. We blame others as someone that they're, they're, like, they're the cause of all evil. So Srila Prabhupada spoke of the frenzy of hate and the frenzy of love. One major factor of human action is religion. That also seems to be more of a motivating factor than that of survival or even sex in many cases. We find in the history of Europe especially that many people, they died for their faith. And many people... Uh, they say that well, religion is a cause of so many problems. It causes so many wars and fights and disputes. One of the uh, most famous people in the world when Srila Prabhupada was preaching and she, uh, was John Lennon, of the uh, singer. Srila Prabhupada also stayed at John Lennon's estate for a few weeks. 
And in one of his songs, one of his most, I think maybe one of his, maybe his most famous song, John Lennon made a song called Imagine. Imagine a, a, a world in which everything was wonderful. So he was describing a world in which there's no hatred and everyone loves each other. And one of the things he said, and there's no religion. How wonderful the world would be with no religion, said John Lennon. It's seen as, uh, many people see it as a great problem because uh, it seems to motivate people in most uh, unreasonable and unsocial ways, un unsociable ways. Again, giving a... Okay, I'll make this the last example from my childhood memories today. But uh, again, in my childhood, there was uh, one professional football player playing in a major football team he became a Jehovah in England when I was, you know, maybe 12 years old or something. He became a Jehovah's Witness. So he gave up his well-paying, prestigious job as a football player because he thought it's, it's too uh, aggressive and it doesn't go well with my religion. And instead he got a job as a window cleaner. And guess what he and his wife did in their spare time? Any guesses? They went door to door trying to make more Jehovah's Witnesses. They're very dedicated preachers. Their philosophy is, uh, you know, if a donkey could think, he would say it makes its nonsense. But uh, somehow or other, they, they're able to motivate people to go door to door and propagate it. One, uh, another factor of human motivation that we don't find in animals at all is the quest for knowledge. And thus, in the modern age especially, people study all kinds of things. Every year there are different branches of more and more specialized branches of knowledge being set up, studying all kinds of things in all kinds of ways and coming up with all kinds of information and all kinds of theories. It can be very confusing because there's so many different outlooks and angles of, of uh, knowledge and discovery that it becomes difficult to think of or understand what, what is the ultimate cause of everything. So these are various motivating factors of human activity. In Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna gives us knowledge which cuts through the whole massive human endeavor of acting and attempting to acquire knowledge and loving and hating. Cuts through. I mean, he, he brings us to the... Uh, I mean, this. what I mean to say is that all of this, this whole massive human endeavor is just... It's a big curtain of Maya. And Lord Krishna cuts through it all in Bhagavad Gita. Mm -hmm. Lord Krishna gives us the knowledge by which we can understand what is the cause of all causes. Simply by studying the effect, we c uh, it, it may not be possible even to guess at what the cause is. For instance, uh, if you see a butterfly, you would never guess that it was the cause, or it was its precursor was a caterpillar, or you would never imagine that a maggot turns into a fly. Or rather, if you see a fly, you couldn't imagine that it would come from a maggot. You know all those words? Okay, good. Maggots. 
So, uh, simply by studying material nature and um, human activity, it's not possible to find out the ultimate cause. But in Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna tells us what is the ultimate cause. Icha dvesha simutena dvanvamohena bharata sarvabhutani sammoham sargayanti parantapa Every living being in this material world, why do we act? This is uh, answered in this verse of Bhagavad Gita. The verse which I just quoted from Bhagavad Gita explains why everyone is acting in this material world. It is due to desire and hate. Under the delusion of thinking in terms of I, me and mine. I am nija paro Ganana laghucheta sam udara charitanam tu. Then the last line is the famous line. Vasundhaiva kutumbaka. One who thinks in terms of I, me, this is mine, that is someone else. This is me, that is someone else. This is mine, that is someone else. That is someone else's. That someone who thinks like that in terms of me and them. That is the calculation of someone of small consciousness, but one of broad consciousness, of magnanimous consciousness, sees that uh, everyone in the world is just like my family member, intimately related with me. These are the uh, ultimate factors of action in this material world. We're in illusion. ultimate factor behind everything is Krishna. And it is our natural propensity to be attracted toward Krishna. But due to forgetting Krishna, we act in different ways. And then everything becomes very confusing. Muhyanti yat suryaha. Even the demigods are bewildered because by not understanding Krishna. Now the demigods, they're supposed to be in the mode of goodness. The... Uh, and in the mode of goodness, then sattvat uh, sanjayate jnanam. From goodness comes knowledge. But despite having uh, fairly clear knowledge, the demigods are also bewildered about the truth of Krishna. So what to speak of the present civilization which is impelled by the lower modes of nature? They're producing so much knowledge and so much analysis, but because they're impelled by the lower modes of nature, it must result, the knowledge must result not in more clarification, but in more confusion. They're studying and studying and doing more and more research with the hope of understanding things better, but as the actual result is they're becoming more and more confused. Because they have no framework, no... Uh, clear epistemological framework by which to understand everything. Therefore, they're just throwing more and more information into their confusion soup and it's becoming more and more confused. So the knowledge of Bhagavad Gita gives us clear knowledge of who we are, what is our existential position, why we are suffering in this material world, and how to be free from that suffering. And the uh, clarity of Bhagavad Gita, the clear knowledge it gives, is a great hope for human society.
which is uh, one reason that it appealed very much to the confused hippies in the 1960s among whom Srila Prabhupada was preaching. It appears from Srila Prabhupada's early writings and his early activities that he, he his original intention was to preach among the leaders or the more uh, cultured or intellectual sections of society. And it's, it, it seems that Srila Prabhupada had great hope that if this philosophy was presented to them, that they would be reasonable and intelligent people would accept it. However, as it happened, Srila Prabhupada's message or his, his uh, ministry really hit, it went down well among many of the hippies who, although not unintellectual, were a very strange group of people. So one, you could say that one reason that Srila Prabhupada was successful among the hippies was that he gave a, he gave a clear direction to very confused people. It's uh, actually amazing how Srila Prabhupada was able to change the hippies who were dedicated to living a totally unregulated life and who uh, they, they, they glorified uh, free sex and intoxication as if they considered this to be practically sacred. That's described in the Srila Prabhupada Lilamrita that someone who was uh, in an in among the hippies, someone who was intoxicated by taking this drug LSD, they, they were considered to be like in a sacred state. But Srila Prabhupada, uh, his message was attractive to the hippies for various reasons. They liked his music, they liked his uh, talk of transcendence, they liked it because he was unusual, he was from the East, they liked the descriptions of Krishna who had long hair, played a flute and danced at night with young girls. But ultimately, of course, it was the, uh, oh, they like the, the, the music, the chanting of Hare Krishna. They like prasadam. Uh, still, it's amazing that Srila Prabhupada, I mean, it, it's, he affected a, a, a complete change in the, in the hippies and made them into devotees of Krishna. Yeah, as I say, one reason is that he gave them some clear direction that this, you should act like this. So, for people who are very confused, that can be very attractive, some clear direction. And that's, uh, that's maybe one reason that groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses are also successful in making many converts, even though their philosophy really makes no sense whatsoever. They promote the idea that this is it. You should, you follow it and you'll be saved and everyone else will burn in hell. So, I find this kind of preaching is very attractive. It's uh, too many people. They they just turn off their thinking mechanism because their mind is so confused they let someone else do the thinking for them. And they have faith that, well, if I just follow this, then I'll be all, everything will be all right. right? But uh, Krishna didn't present Bhagavad Gita like that to Arjuna and Srila Prabhupada never presented Krishna consciousness like that to us either. We find that Srila Prabhupada was constantly speaking the philosophy of Bhagavad Gita. In the morning he would go on a walk and he would discuss with his disciples the philosophy of Bhagavad Gita. From different angles, often his disciples would, especially in the morning walks, they would bring different 
bizarre pieces of information from the uh, news and tell it to Srila Prabhupada and get Srila Prabhupada to comment. So then Srila Prabhupada would come to the temple and he'd give Bhagavatam class. Then often during the day Srila Prabhupada would meet different people and speak to them the philosophy of Bhagavatam and Gita. And often in the evening Srila Prabhupada would either give a Bhagavad Gita class or he'd have an outside preaching program speaking on Bhagavad Gita philosophy. And at night uh, when everyone was sleeping Srila Prabhupada would dictate his Bhagavatam purpose. So we've all heard many stories of Srila Prabhupada, various anecdotes. But apart from all these various anecdotes, I mean, the main thing that Srila Prabhupada was doing day and night was speaking the philosophy of Bhagavad Gita for the benefit of his disciples and everyone else who cared to listen. Because Srila Prabhupada very much uh, wanted that his disciples and uh, everyone else, everyone in the world who had some intelligence understand this philosophy and uh, being convinced of it, apply it in their lives in Krishna consciousness. So in uh, philosophy, as I was saying, one of the uh, of, uh, practically the the uh, the bedrock or the basis of philosophy is understanding what are the what are the ultimate causes of everything that is being discussed in this verse that we discussed today to some extent. So we should uh, try to understand these things, how it practically influences our lives. One devotee was telling me that uh, one of his friends who is a devotee is from the country called Macedonia, which used to be part of Yugoslavia. And it's a small country. It's probably, the pop- it's probably smaller in size and population than Tatarstan. So anyway, one of the devotees... Before the country became a country, in other words, before it separated from Serbia, there was one devotee who was, uh, yeah, he was a devotee, and he was, um, after the country, so he was a devotee for a few years, and he read Prabhupada's books regularly, and uh, after some time, following the, uh, a, a certain trend in Iskon, he went back to university and he enrolled in a philosophy course. And even his professors were surprised at how much he knew about philosophy, even he knew many things that they didn't know. So they asked him, well, how do you know so much? He said, well, I'm a member of ISKCON, the High Christian Movement, and everyone in our movement knows all these things. It's just ordinary things for us. So he became quite, uh, although a young man, he became, he got quite a reputation for being very highly learned because he'd assiduously studied Srila Prabhupada's books for a few years. And then someone recommended him to the president of the country, and the president appointed him as his admin. Recommended, the president was asking someone, you know, who do you think I should have as my advisor? And he got recommended, and he's the advisor to the president of Macedonia, which, you know, it's like being maybe the president of, you know, that's, it's a small country, but anyway, he's the advisor to him. So that's nice. Uh, Srila Prabhupada wanted that his disciples be recognized for their uh, learning and their character and their purity. It's a fact if we absorb ourselves in the philosophy given in Srila Prabhupada's books that we can't be bland, stupid people that are just talking all nonsense like everybody does all the time. The teachings given in Srila Prabhupada's books are so profound 
that uh, anyone who's a little bit thoughtful can understand that these are this is not simply some dogmatic religion, but it's it's coming from a platform of higher knowledge, and we're finding that all over the world, uh, people are very many many people are very much appreciating Srila Prabhupada's books. Was that Pladini was telling me yesterday that when she shows people books that they say, "Oh, is this Jehovah's?" Jehovah's Witness books say, no, these are Prabhupada's books. Oh, Prabhupada's books. Okay, that's very good. We, all right, give me one. Gradually people are realizing the value of these books. The Jehovah's Witnesses are publishing, trying to distribute books, but people in general are, are not interested, but thoughtful people are interested in Prabhupada's books. I heard about this group, this Scientology group. I heard that they must be here also. Scientology. Something about their books. That uh, in in Manhattan, in New York City, if you put anything down for one for ten seconds and look away, when you look back again, it'll be gone. But if you put a whole pile of Scientology books, you can go away, and no one will come until the garbage cleaner comes and takes it out. No one will touch it. It was the same thing during the. Uh, in the 1970s, late, late, yeah, 1970s, 1980s, I was often in Calcutta. And, uh, at the, at the stoplights, there'd be urchins hawking these, uh, these, uh, magazines printed in Russia, written in English and Bengali and very, I mean, at that time in, in India there was no good quality printing, so very high quality printing, very colorful, very beautiful magazines and books propagating communist philosophy. No one was interested, even though they were very beautifully made. No one, had, no one was in the slightest bit interested in taking these books. Because despite the fact that they're very beautifully produced, people understand that there's, there's nothing of any interest or value in there. It's just some useless propaganda. But Prabhupada's books have a different reputation altogether. Now, despite the, the fact that our, our movement in general is not as dynamic as it used to be, the, the people of the world in general are more and more and more appreciating Srila Prabhupada's books. Is, uh, when Prabhupada was preaching in the West at first, when People joined and they went away. Everyone was shocked, including Srila Prabhupada. But after some time, they became it became unfortunately so common that everyone got used to it. People come, they become enthusiastic, they get initiated, then they go away. We see it all the time, unfortunately. But Srila Prabhupada wasn't discouraged. He, he said, well, if the books are there, then anyway, new people will come. So... Srila Prabhupada's books, as we can all experience by reading them, are, they're not just another dogmatic tracts of some sectarian nonsensical idea. We are not distributing these books because out of some blind sentiment. It's not like the just like in the football team, they hate the neighboring team. So it's like that. If you're a if you're a Christian, you you hate the Muslims, or if you're a Sunni Muslim, you hate the Shia. It's it's nothing like that. 
It is rather it is a delineation of our eternal relation with the supreme cause of all causes, who is Krishna. The knowledge that we can practically apply in our lives, so that we can become free from the illusion of attachment and hatred. So please read Prabhupada's books. Has anyone ever heard me say that before? How many times? Don't take to Krishna consciousness as a, simply as a sentiment. Try to understand this philosophy. As Prabhupada took so much endeavor, practically all of Prabhupada's endeavor was to tra- transmit this philosophy and, and give it practical shape. And if we uh, if we're actually absorbing that knowledge and perceiving the effect in our lives, then we'll naturally want to distribute this knowledge to others. So, Hare Krishna. Jagadish Pandit Prabhu is coming here regularly and distributing Srila Prabhupada's books. That's nice. But we need more than we need more than one pandit. We need a whole army. Of course the reserves they're also required. Not everyone can be full time, but some people can be part time also. You're going to other places also? Um some devotees came from Amnatyavs, Leninagos. From Leninagos. They still call it Leninagos. They didn't change the name yet. Anyone else came from anywhere else today? Ninja Disney comes. Yeah, right. Okay, good. Yeah. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, whose mercy He's carrying the mercy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is coming to all these places which most people in Russia have never heard about Nityavsko. But uh, somehow or other Krishna's mercy has come here. So please keep on pushing on this movement, try to distribute this knowledge, practice it in our lives ourselves. Hare Krishna. Any question about this? Sorry if the lectures are very philosophical. That's my habit. It's I mean it was not very philosophical, but I mean, but uh, anyway, it was a philosophical approach. So I just when we joined the movement, we always used to discuss all these things like this, and I was trained like that. So. It's my habit since joining. Western people more philosophical. Is it? Is it? Then? More philosophical than Russians? Than Easterners. Than Russians also? Do you think so? I don't know. I'm talking about the football team. I think most people are very philosophical. Well, clearly India was previously a land of great philosophy, but that's really changed nowadays. I mean, what goes on in the name of modern Hinduism, all these bogus people, it's, I mean, if there was any philosophy, then these people couldn't, they wouldn't have an inch, they couldn't survive at all. They can only go on because people are completely stupid. Of course, Srila Prabhupada wanted the, uh, the core of his ISKCON, that in the temples, uh, he wanted that there be Brahmins, that means people who are philosophically inclined. And then for others, there may be farms and 
Now maybe there'd be more storytelling or whatever, but for the Brahminical class who are supposed to guide society, they're supposed to understand this philosophy threadbare. Srila Prabhupada used that term threadbare, which means you know I mean? thoroughly. Thoroughly, you can say. Hare Krishna, any question please? It is said that uh, the spirit soul is always active. Yeah. Uh, how this activity or this action is manifest in the conditioned state? Because it is stated that in the conditioned state the soul is uh, sleeping. Sleeping condition. Yeah, but in the sleep you can also be active in, in dreams. So it's like a dreaming state. That's the analogy given. In the dream one experiences as, a, as, as reality. In fact, in the dream it sometimes seems more vivid than what we would call real life. And it seems, it can seem so real that even when you wake up you, you still think the dream's going on. You still think it's true. A few nights ago I had a dream that my briefcase was broken open and my computer was stolen. I was thinking, oh no, did I back up all my work? All my work is lost. <laughs> A few nights ago. A few nights ago, yeah, in Bombay, just shortly before coming here. And it was so strong that even when I woke up, I was still thinking, oh no. <laughs> and then gradually I realized, oh wait a minute, now, uh, yeah, um, it was only a dream. I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not on a train and it hasn't been stolen and broken open and I'm, I'm in this room, it's room 106 in the guest house and it's gone Bombay and everything's okay. <laughs> So Srila Prabhupada in one conversation discussed this very interesting. He was talking about the, the daydream and the nightdream. That we think that this is reality, that I am living in Tatarstan, this, uh, this is my house, this is my wife, this is my dacha, all these things. But we think it's true because we see it day after day after day. But just like in the dream, it comes to an end and then it no longer exists. So in the same way, this existence, after some time it comes to an end. It's just because it's longer, it seems real, but actually it's not real, it's not real in the ultimate sense. So material existence is simultaneously real and unreal. And if we, if we want to say, is it more real than unreal or more unreal than unreal, it's more unreal than real. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the dream, it's real. I mean, you really, we really feel fear, uh, sexual attraction. All these things can appear in a, in a dream. Well, but I mean, the, the experience is there, but it's not really real because it has no actual substance. It's just a mental construct. So some philosophers or impersonalistic kind of my people, they, they say that, well, everything in this existence is also just a mental construct, which is true to some extent. But the interface with reality is that in this dreamlike human existence, we can cultivate knowledge of Krishna and come to the actual position of reality. Just like in a dream, you may have had that experience. You're having a dream and you know, maybe you're cycling along the road and you're going somewhere to do something. 
And all of a sudden, in the middle of the dream, you think, hey, this is all nonsense. The Krishna's, I'm supposed to be chanting Hare Krishna. And then you remember about Krishna in the dream. And you that whole experience of forgetting Krishna, you forget it because you remember Krishna in the dream. In the dream, you understand, this is a dream, this is all nonsense. So in this long dream, which we call human life, we can cultivate that in a systematic way, remembering Krishna. Then we can start to come to the position of reality. Anything else? Yes, please. Um, as far as I can understand from, from your words in the lecture, you said that love is uh, connected or combined with hate, hate in this world. Yes. So, how can we get rid of uh, love if uh, the spirit soul has this propensity to love someone? And the second question is, uh, is love with uh, love for Krishna uh, connected with some uh, hate? Can love for Krishna cause hate towards uh, anything else? Now, in this material world, love, the so-called love, is always accompanied by 